Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson. In this month, we're speaking to Simon Gallen off of SDI. And I'm not going to go on with a long introduction because this is already a long podcast. So cue funky theme music. Well, I'm here today with Simon Gallen from SDI. Hi, Simon. How are you? Very good, thanks. Very good, John. I gave you that extra special introduction by mentioning SDI because you are like Mr. SDI. You're not just Simon Gallen. Yeah, There's I more said, to it than that, isn't there? Uh, well, I've been involved with it for uh, quite a long time uh, now, and I suppose we're a bit like the famous Hoover and that we're better known for the product rather than the company. So the, the company is Personal Strengths in the UK, and uh, the SDI is our central product that everything springs from. Yeah, I mean, it, it's reasonably well known, and, and we're going to talk about it and go through what it is and everything. I suppose we should say what it stands for, shouldn't we? It's... Sure, sure. It's the, it's the Strength Deployment Inventory. Right, and this is some kind. This is one of these psychometric type tools which helps us understand ourselves, increase self awareness, and things like that. And the reason I wanted to speak to you about this, Simon, is, as you well know, I did my SDI certification a few months ago, and I and I went into this to be honest, quite sceptical, and not really sure what to expect, and not really sure if I was going to like it. And you know, I don't particularly like being categorised. I kind of find this, I find some of these tools a little bit superficial. You know, which obviously they have to be because you're trying to distill human psychology down to about 16 types or 10 types, whatever it is. But I have to say, I actually came out quite convinced and I actually really quite liked it. And that's not just because the food was good. Uh-huh. Um, I actually thought it was really, really useful. And I found it quite uh, quite enlightening. And I've used it since in, in various things. So I really wanted to kind of share this with the podcast community. So thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Oh, yeah. pleasure. It's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned your um, hesitation when um, you, were, you were dealing with another psychometric. And, and actually, in the early days, we, we tried to get away from associating ourselves with um, the world of psychometrics because there was a, a less than neutral, I don't want to say negative, but less than neutral feel about the use of psychometrics. So we're more comfortable with it now. I think people are becoming more aware that in these days you have to have um, modern assessments. Uh, They've got to be tested. And really, if there's an instrument that's been around for a while, it should be valid and it should be being tested. So the SDI is a psychometric tool. Uh, It is different to others because it looks at motivation rather than behavior. And uh, specifically under a couple of conditions when things are going well and because life's not always rosy, it's uh, it's faced with conflict. So that when you say that you you felt comfortable with it at the end, it's probably because um, it's real and people recognise it. Well, yeah, I mean that's certainly what I felt, and you know, I I, I I'm not um uh, what I I kind of like this sort of stuff to some extent, but I'm not a massive fan of it, and I kind of hold it all at arm's length. And I've resisted MBTI for probably about the last twenty five years, to be honest, <laughs> and um. You know, I, I, uh, but actually, when I came out of STI, it, it, it did give me a much, it did help me with my self-awareness. I kind of liked what it was saying to me, and I noticed some of it as we were going through some of the exercises. Right. I could feel myself, there's one exercise, when I felt myself going into conflict, and I uh, recognized, yeah. and I thought, oh my God, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. This, and, this is happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, and, and therefore it convinced me slowly. And, and I am quite skeptical about this. I wasn't cynical, but I was skeptical. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember your keen questions. Do you? Yes. You, I bet you were like, well, you, you, you held your poker face quite well. If you're <laughs> being true. irritated by it, you didn't. <laughs> no, not it. at all. Not at all. Because I think it's one of the reasons that the SDI has been so successful um, over the years is that like you, many people resist being told about themselves. We're all fascinated by ourselves and we want to learn and it's great when we can have a conversation where we can talk about ourselves. But if someone else dares to actually describe you, even though they might get a lot of the aspects right, it does feel a bit like an imposition. And I think this is sort of one of the key differences. And you mentioned MBTI, which has been around for years and is is in the infrastructure of most large organizations throughout the UK and, and, and all around the world. But that was designed to be a type indicator. So it's, it's naturally taking you to a point where you would say, this is my type. The SDI was designed and based around something called relationship awareness theory. And the purpose of that was to 
provide information that would allow self-reflection, that would allow discussion. Um, and in fact, Elias Porter, or, or Port as he was known, he was really one of the pioneers in changing this environment of learning from an expert telling you to a what we would call a facilitator these days, teasing out the, the, the information from you. And Carl Rogers was heralded with really making the biggest change. But, but interestingly, um, Port studied as a student under Carl Rogers. And then a few years later, he returned to work with him on his staff at University of Chicago. So, um, you know, at that time, the student was influencing the teacher and then they worked together. And that was one of the things that led on to uh, the creation of the SDI. But certainly this foundation of relationship awareness and a, uh, a heuristic approach to learning was really pioneered uh, and instigated by, uh, by Port and, uh, and Rogers. So Carl Rogers and his student Elias Porter, did they, uh, were they the people that developed relationship awareness theory? It was it was an ongoing process, um, uh, and I mean, at the time when they were all at Chicago, it wasn't just Paul and um, and Carl Rogers. I mean, there was guys like Tom Gordon, uh, Abraham Maslow, Will Schutz was there, um, Paul Hersey was there, and you know, I've got this kind of vision in my mind. It was almost like the sort of psychology version of the Cambridge Footlights. You had all these guys feeding off each other with different theories, and Porter particularly, he. I mean, the, the theory goes back to Sigmund Freud. That then um, was influenced more by Eric Fromm. So Port took Eric Fromm's orientations. And then by the time he started creating his first versions of the SDI, and one that um, some folks might recognize is LIFO. He was instrumental in LIFO before um, Catcher and Atkins split away from Port. By the time he got to the SDI, that had really combined um, the positive aspects of, uh, of motivation expressed by Freud and Eric Fromm. The thing that he developed with Carl Rogers was this striving for self-worth. They really talked a lot about, in amongst all these negative uh, orientations that were around at the time, there seemed to be something positive that everyone was trying to achieve and that led them on to this idea that um, uh, there was a positive intent behind these behaviours. And finally, the thing that was unique from Port was that he added in that your motives changed when you felt personally threatened or there was conflict around. So this relationship awareness theory is talking about this positive striving for self-worth. Is that correct? If I yes. understood you correctly. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's a set of uh, things that are important. I mean, people use the word motivation, but that, that can operate at multi-levels. So if we, if we consider that there's a set of primary motivations, drivers, and all of us have a unique combination, we've put it together in a way that's unique to us. And what the SDI looks at is how that combination of motives affects the way that you perceive and judge the world around you and the kind of behavioral choices you make as a result right okay and you use some mbti language there with perceive and judge so it yeah. is around that perceiving being the way we take in information and then judging how we process it and make decisions yeah i think there's there's same words used but probably in a different context so when we talk about the SDI, uh, we have this thing called the motivational value system, which is that that's the word that, the, the words that we give used to describe the collection of motives that remain constant for you throughout your life. Now, that acts as a filter. So when other people's behavior comes in through that filter, that gives us our perception. And then what happens next is that we all judge it against the best set of personal values that exist, which we tend to believe are our own. And then that leads on to behavioral choice. So that's kind of a universal thing rather than a specific right. like MBTI. Okay, so you are using the words in the more normal lang English language sense. Yes. We have this motivational uh, value system and we perceive and that which acts as a filter, as you said then. So we, it's well known, of course, that we filter the, the information around us. We don't see the world like a camera sees the world. Everything's filtered. So what's presented to our conscious brain goes through an enormous amount of filtering. Yeah. And you're saying the, the, the motivational value system is part of that filter. Or, yeah, it, or, it is that filter. It is really, that filter. For, for us, it is that filter. It, it, it allows uh, information in, and typically 
we will look for information that provides us the opportunity to uh, pursue the things that we value most. Right. And it and, might even filter out some of the more unpleasant stuff that we would rather avoid. Okay. And then that, that gives us this, um, and then we make these judgments around what's happening and, and will therefore act accordingly. Absolutely. That's the kind of theoretical basis. Yeah. And, and the big challenge that we've got with this motivational value system is that we can't see it. You know, Freud talked about this set of uh, priorities that were hidden and that were influencing us on a daily basis. And, you know, years later, we've given it a name, but we still can't see it. But what we do know is the effect that it has on the way that we communicate with those around us. Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. I know I've, I've been doing quite a lot of research on this for some other work that I've been doing that fits neatly into what you're saying. And it's absolutely fascinating the more I read about our unconscious bias and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really interesting area. Let, let me go back to this point I was making before when I was talking about MBTI and stuff like that and DISC and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Because you are in that competing market space of all these other ways there are of describing the human personality yeah. that everyone's trying to sell into every organization. So what's different about SDI? Why should we even look at you rather than just go back to those? First of all, what's different? Let's do that. Fundamentally, things like MBTI and most of the other instruments uh, look at uh, and study your behavior. They look at behavioral traits and they are designed to produce a type uh, where you can learn the aspects of that type applied in different um, uh, different applications, different job roles, etc. Fundamentally, the SDI goes underneath the behavior and looks at what's driving it. So our theory is that when you understand the reason why people are behaving in the ways they do, if you ever come to a point where there's some miscommunication or the effect of their behavior is not what you really wanted, then you can keep the thing that's important to them, the reason why they're trying to um, behave in that way, but you can modify the behavior so that you achieve the goal or the purpose of the relationship and their personal motivation. So that's one of the the biggest differences. Um, Why should you choose SDI? Well, they're all tools. And as biased as I am, I have to say that when you select a tool for a job, You've really got to be very clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve. What's the end result that you want? Because there's a variety of tools out there and, you know, it's pointless selecting a screwdriver if you want to bang a nail in a brick wall. So be clear about what you're trying to achieve and then select the appropriate tool because there's plenty out there. So what what would what where would SDI fit into that? What would I be trying to achieve where SDI would be the answer? Overall, uh, effective and sustainable behavioral change, uh, higher personal engagement through understanding. Um, when people uh, really understand and they can have it explained or as well, they, they discover the reasons why certain people, certain situations impact on them in the way they do. And then they're given the choice to actually behave in a different way. Then they tend to just get drawn towards it more and more. And I suppose at a personal level, that's that's really the, the the highest impact. But you know, our clients, our facilitators, they go out there and they have to provide training solutions for organisations. So some of the consistent feedback that we get is that it's incredibly flexible in its application. You can use it as a standalone, but typically people use it to enhance other things. So they will go into leadership programs. Um, they will talk about a leader's preferred style. Uh, We can look at the impact of how that lands on others. We can look how conflict affects the leader. Uh, We can take that onto their direct reports and get expectations or feedback. The thing that we touched on before was that it's, uh, it's very high face validity. People get it very, very quickly. And because of that, they start using the language very quickly, they experiment, they play with it, and that's when the learning tends to happen. So when you say validity, we touched on that before, before we were recording, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite people won't get on that, but... um, uh, You mean that when you say validity... validity, The the, the face validity, when uh, it's, it's that moment where people start to challenge the information that's presented with them, and they and they just say, do you know what? That explains why. Well, things that I've heard, why I'm on my third marriage. And, uh, you know, if I'd known this 20 years ago, I wouldn't be. Or that's why that particular manager always seems to wind me up. And now I understand how I've been 
reacting or why I've been reacting in that way, and I can see that there was no reason for me to do that, then actually I can relax. And probably when I relax, they can relax and we can have a more productive time together. Right. So it is, as you said, it's going down to this sort of motivation as mm-hmm. in how, how going back to the self-worth idea yeah. if, if we accept that idea that we're all kind of striving for self-worth among other things but that's part of sure. what what motivates us then that that's where it's looking at so it's looking at this slightly deeper level than things like mbti and disc etc which are a slightly higher level in terms of looking at behaviors have i got you right yeah i i mean i i try not to make comparisons between the instruments because it's a bit like the screwdriver and the hammer they're designed to do different things right, so okay. um having said that the sdi can be instant grab um the coaches that we um that we hear from say that the sdi is capable of incredible depth because as as you inferred earlier when you start looking at the motivation that you have the things that are important to you and how that may have been affecting your experiences to date and the choices that you now have going forward, that can be quite significant for people. I mean, we have got that depth uh, with the motivation thing, but there is also that other side of it, which is what, where the name comes from, because it's strengths deployment inventory, and it's not motivation deployment inventory, because there is that other side as well, where it does actually talk about strengths or behaviours, which which sort of sit with the motivation which we'll go into later i know but i just kind of want to make the point that it's not just that very underlying thing it's actually got the very kind of behavioral stuff at the top yeah i mean one of the uh the the criticisms that uh that i remember having launched at us um you know 30 odd years ago was um with our good pragmatic uk audiences they would say yeah this awareness stuff is okay but awareness doesn't change anything so what and that one question of so what consistently being asked all those years ago really drove us to design a very pragmatic approach to using the SDI and the tools. And I think the thing that you're referring to is the strengths portrait. And the yeah. the so what of SDI is by understanding what drives us and what's important to individuals, we learn that so that we can make better behavioral choices in the future. And when you start looking at that, you need to have a starting point and the starting point happens to be this other product called the Strengths Portrait. Yeah, but that's all linked together. And I do want to talk about that because I, I ended up finding that some of the most valuable elements of it. Let's just go back a step. Let's just talk about what this motivational value system is, the MVS, as us SDI qualified people call it. Uh-huh. This is represented in, in a triangular, in a triangle. Yes. Do you want to just talk us through what this is about, how it works? Yeah, this is um, this is a great question, John. So, getting me to describe a visual product when we haven't got any visual audio medium, we'll try and do it. Yeah, okay. So well, we can so, we can put the triangle on the website. So yeah, if people fine. want to be able to see it. They can they can click on that. Oh, that'd be good. So that'll make this uh, this analogy a bit easier then, probably. So, first of all, let's have a look at this MVS. So, uh, I think I mentioned before, the motivational value system is a collection of uh, priorities or motivations that. When we put them together for ourselves, it's not a conscious thing, just kind of happens. Once it's solid and it's going to remain fairly constant throughout our lives, that unique combination of values is what we refer to as the MBS. Now, the, the next thing is we need to find some way of representing it. And it happens to be that we use a, a, a triangle and the three points have different colors and they also represent different priorities. So probably the, the easiest way of describing this is um, if, if we were to think of the triangle like a map of the world where we could see that there were seven regions in the, in the whole triangle and each region would be like a different co- um, country. So you've done a bit of traveling, John. Um, when, you, um, when you step off the, the plane or the boat and you're meeting some folks for the first time in a, in a different country, um, what do you notice first off about them it's usually sort of quite superficial and small things like they may be dressed differently the signs are different right um you know the the cars are different it's it's quite normal background stuff that just suddenly looks different Uh uh-huh and how do you get on with the road signs and and asking for stuff well you've got language obviously is a problem isn't it immediate well often especially in my case and um you know, you, you yeah, you don't speak the language usually. Depends where I'm going, obviously. You don't I just, try. Uh, you don't try speaking English with their accent, then. 
Yeah, I do that as well. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, so I'm, you, I'm all right in Spanish, but uh, right, much yeah. much beyond that, I, I'm I'm a bit lost. A bit of school schoolboy French, but I I of course, yeah, everything looks foreign. You don't speak the language. You can't communicate. Um, very very easy to misunderstand stuff and be be misunderstood, and not just because of language stuff, also just behavioural stuff. You know, you you cue, they don't cue, or you know, you stand in the wrong side of something. You know, there's all these kind of little rules that you just don't know. Right, there's some there's some cultural aspects to it. Um, yeah, I I remember once, uh, well, it was some, the first time I went over to uh, to Singapore, and our UK habit, if somebody asks you for a, a a business card, is basically to pull one out of your wallet or your card holder, and you just hand it over one handed. And what I noticed over there was what they do is that they take their card in both hands, look at it themselves, turn it round so it faces you, and then they will offer you even something as small as a business card or a credit card with both hands, and you are to take it with both hands. And these are the kind of things that are important for their culture. So the the reason that we use the the triangle uh, linked with the SDI and these different motives is not only is it a visual representation of where all these different priorities sit, but we we need to understand that although we're probably all speaking English, it is as though we're from different countries. So we're translating what each other are saying all the time. And, um, you know, when we meet important people or there's key stakeholders and key situations, we don't want to offend them by not understanding their culture. And there's going to be times when it is crucial that we communicate very clearly about our intent. So it would be smart to learn a, how they might be translating our language, but B, it would be really smart if we learnt a little of their language in order to communicate. So that triangle really shows us that people with different priorities do speak a different language, they have different cultural preferences, and we ignore those at our peril. Right, okay. So we've got this triangle, and as you say, it's got these sort of seven regions, which... Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a simplification. I, I remember you telling me there was something like five thousand positions. Yeah, plus on the mm-hmm. on the triangle. I think I think when you said that, I actually tried to work it out in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why you went quiet. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I I did I, I almost got there. I think. Um, and so there are there are about five thousand positions, which is still a simplification, of course. Yes, because you've not added in the aspect of conflict yet. Well, and 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 seven. Uh, so we've got these seven regions on the triangle, and as you said, there are obviously the three points of the triangle are three of the regions, mm-hmm. which are represented by colours. Yes. So I suppose tell us what those three regions are, and then what where are these other four regions? Right. So going back to um, the the three points, the 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 colours that we use, which are shortcuts, by the way, of red, blue, and green. The motives are centred around people, performance, and process. So the uh, scales are from zero to 100. So you might have someone with a position of predominantly, like sort of say 60% in the, uh, the blue, um, and that would leave the remaining 40% to be divided up between the red and the green. So that's actually where I sit. So in terms of my motives, uh, I'm quite happy when I am helping other people. I'm not looking for any particular gain um, while I'm supporting others. And that's what is overall most important to me. However, for 20% of the time, I can be totally focused on the task. It's invigorating, it's exciting, and that's fine. But I just can't keep it up for very long. So we all have a blend of these three. So if you end up in the extremes of the uh, the triangle, then you will probably have a, a clear preference of people, performance, or process. But the others that um, you mentioned... Okay, can I just stop you there for a second? Sorry. Yeah. Because I think when people talk about whether or not your uh, people, which is the blue mm-hmm. end of the triangle, people get that. Right. I think that's talked about a lot, again, in things like MBTI, that the focus on the people, as opposed to the task, which is the red, the performance. Yeah. This process one? Right. So process in terms of uh, structure, this motivational value system uh, gets its security from understanding uh, what the rules and regulations are. It needs clarity. It needs logic. It needs a process that in a given situation, if you follow these steps, then you will get this result. You will be operating within the laws. You, it will be done ethically, those kind of things. Right. I think that, that that's the point of the triangle I possibly have most problem with and would challenge more. Okay. 
and I, I do that because I think the description is it excludes the the other way of thinking about it, which is more conceptual. Okay. Well, if we go back to the uh, the original descriptions that Porter was using, his description of this green MVS or the process that uh, we sometimes refer to it now was analytic autonomizing. Now, that combination of two words sums up the overall priorities. So the analysis is probably self-explanatory. It looks around and takes in information needing to make sense of it. But the autonomy comes in in terms of its self-dependence. It's not independent because it realizes that it needs information from people and things around it. But really, this one values its own space. It values time to think, time to get things right. So if you if you present something new and you ask someone uh, with this MBS uh, a question, quite likely the response will take a couple of seconds while they consider because getting it right and getting it clear is more important than giving an instant response. Right. Okay. That makes more sense to me. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. I was, I was interpreting it a little bit like Belbin. You know, Belbin has the kind of, the way I draw Belbin up is I have a triangle where there's people where, you know, one corner task at another where the completer finisher sits, but then there's the third point in the triangle, which is where the plant sits, which is all about ideas. Yeah. So for me, I was kind of thinking this process, yeah, okay, it could be process, rules, order, etc., which turns me off to some extent, whereas the plant side of things, the conceptual, the possibilities, the, the maybes, the but still quite idea and autonomous focus very much turns me on. So that's why I kind of felt it kind of doesn't describe me. Is it because I'm misunderstanding it or there's something missing? Yeah, and, and I think this is where the descriptions between different instruments can get very confusing because uh, you know I've I've been asked questions like well where is the most creative MVS where on the triangle is creative motiv- um, uh, motivations because in other instruments they'll say right this tends to be the creative one the driving one etc cetera, etc cetera. but we're dealing with different things so if you put someone with a red MVS the performance driven motivation. If you put them in an environment where they have to follow rules, regulations, there's no opportunity to push the boundaries or succeed or get recognition, you will stifle their natural creativity. If you put them in an environment where it's exciting, maybe even challenge them in terms of, here's a goal that we quite honestly don't believe that we can achieve. It's such an uphill task. But, you know, with your experience, you might be able to do it. It's challenging. It's robust. It's honest. That will increase the creativity for that MVS. So you know, part of the difference with the way that we use our materials is that we don't talk about where people are creative or how people communicate with a certain style. We create the environment in which their natural creativity and their natural need to succeed just comes out. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I like that description. Mm-hmm. So you, you were going on to then talk about where the other four regions were and I interrupted you. Right. Okay. So a bit of visual imagination then. So if we have our triangle where the we have two points at the uh, at the top, so we have a horizontal plane and there's a point at the bottom. If you imagine that I'm talking about top left and top right, those were the points of our two of our three motives. If we looked at a section in the middle, that would be balancing in equal proportions, let's say the people and the performance. So you'd get a motivation which is really balancing the two equally. So one would focus particularly on the performance, but not to the extent where maybe the people were suffering. Equally, they might focus on creating really harmonious relationships, but not at the expense of the goal. So it's almost like a seesaw where people would balance them out. So we have three balancing acts, three, uh, three, two seesaws, sorry, three seesaws of uh blue and red, red and green, and green and blue. And then right in the center... Can I interrupt you again? Yeah. Before you do that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, seesaw. Yeah. Interesting point, way of looking at it. So seesaw essentially between, for example, the red-blue example you gave there, where somebody would be spend some of the time being motivated in red, some of the time in blue. Presumably there's, uh, there's also a kind of greatness some of the parts way of looking at it as well. Whereas they would pull red and blue together to create something different, absolutely. Because rather you, than being one or or t'other, right? So if you um uh, so that the, I better extend the analogy of the seesaw because 
the seesaw allows us to see that this individual has both of these priorities in equal proportion. So we can assume that the thing that they like is balance between the two of them, if it's equal proportion. So if they're in an environment where one is being heavily laden, so if you had somebody who was uh, in an environment where, let's say, the performance side was low on the ground and the, the, the people side was up in the air and being ignored, in order to create balance, they would focus their attention on perhaps moving further towards the people side to create that equilibrium again. So this is how people will shift their behavior and their emphasis depending on how they perceive the situation. So that's the two, that's when you mix two colors. That's when you mix two, yeah. And now you're ready for the, the, the big one. Where the seventh we, one. We, we put, uh, where we put all three together in equal proportions. So I was trying to think of a, a variation of the seesaw. And the, the best I could come up with is those torturous things you use in a gym, which is like a big disc of wood with a uh, half a ball underneath, which basically this thing can rock in any direction. And it's a similar thing. The, uh, the, the hub or the center of the triangle is all about balance and equilibrium, balancing people, performance, process in equal measure. So it's harmonizing, it's cohesive, it's looking for input from everybody to create the best options. Um, and they will move just like the seesaw to the point where it's, they feel it's needed to create a balance of those three. So, I mean, that's the best one then, isn't it? It might sound like that, but you've got to, you've got to go back to what the STI is looking at. It's motivation. And something that measures motivation can't tell you how effective you are. So this is not a competency tool. So people who are constantly looking for options might have the potential to create the most well-rounded uh, solutions, but they also have the potential to procrastinate a lot and never get anything done. Right, so it it comes with its dark side as well. Yeah, well, I dark try, try to stay away from but... the dark side. But yeah. um, <laughs> uh, one of the uh, it just it does sound like the best one though. If you compare that to somebody who was a hundred percent red, for example, and I know that you you told me before you actually met somebody who was yeah, uh, ninety six some, some years ago. I think yeah, said... he was even no, he was actually a hundred in the red. I was a hundred. Yeah, but oh god, if you think if it separate the motivation from the behaviour, if you are one hundred percent focused on performance then we don't know how effective you are however if you were 100% focused so basically nothing else mattered apart from achieving the goals if you were smart what you would do is you would develop strategies of being clear in your communication identifying responsibilities of your team members training them up making sure they got the right feedback the right support and you would probably develop a whole range of behavioral skills in order to achieve your motivational goals. Sure, but if you didn't, and you would, we just all sort of turned up as our natural selves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm laboring this question slightly is because I have been asked it a few times, is the hub kind of feels like where people should aspire to be because it gives them that flexibility to flex in and out of the parts of the triangle as and when. Right, but again, just because they decide that they need to move their motivation to a particular part of the triangle doesn't mean that A, they've made the right choice, or B, they will deploy the most effective behaviour at the time. And I suppose the motivation doesn't move, does it, really? No, it it remains, because no one's ever done any really rigorous long-term studies, we can't hand on heart say it is totally fixed, but we know from evidence from lots of other research that basically this, this set of motives will remain constant throughout our lives. So we're left with these seven regions then. So we've got the three points of the triangle. We've got the three the three places in the middle of the lines where the two points mix, where you get two colours mixing. And then you've got the middle where the three colours mix. Mm-hmm. And in fact, everywhere that's not on a line has some level of mix. Oh yeah, unless, unless you're 100 blue, red or green, you have a percentage of something else in you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, all, there's always an element of mix anyway. Absolutely. Um, so this, this gives us these seven different descriptors, places where we can sit, uh, seven again being a simplification, but it gives us seven things to describe about motivation, what we're motivated by. Yeah. I'll tell you what mine was. I don't know if you remember. Do you red, remember? Red, green? Yeah, I, well, more or less, yeah. I actually came out as hub. Okay. I kind of didn't like that. I was at my, my... <laughs> You were just saying it was the best place to be. No, well, um, no, well, I was, I was giving you a softball question. That I, 
that I've been asked loads of times and I just wanted to make sure I was answering it properly and you answered it far better than I did so I'm going to copy your answer in the future but um, no I came out well I was actually on the border of red green and green but just inside the hub so my the analysis came back as hub but when I actually read the descriptors of hub red green and green I realized that actually it was pretty much it was maybe a couple of points out but it was pretty much in the right space and I was kind of a reasonably flexible um, red green green person well that's that's interesting that you say it was only a couple of points out because with any inventory of this uh, style there was always going to be a statistical room for maneuver and on this instrument plus or minus six points is what we would expect in terms of variation so if you were to complete it again after six months or six years it could be that you would um, find yourself firmly in the red green but it actually raises another point, which you were going back right at the beginning of the, of the conversation. And that is that if this had been a test, which was designed to give you a type, you would have been told, you are hub, here is the information on you. Whereas the style that um, we have with relationship awareness theory is that we provide you with a lot of other information and we challenge the information that we've given you. In fact, you challenged it more than most. Um, and then through that, um, that's, that's the green side of me. Yeah, absolutely, and quite right too. But then through that challenge, you actually had a greater and more meaningful uh, element of self-discovery than just being provided with um, some information on your type. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, you said about the six points being out. When it's only ten questions, yeah. isn't it? It's like ten questions, and, and which isn't a lot, really. No. In order to actually, I know you have to distribute points across those questions. So. Yeah, that's that's the trick. Because yeah, yeah. Um, there are, um, in, in reality, you can answer each one of those statements because it's over three priorities. You could respond 10 0, 0 or it could be 0, 10, 0, or 0, 0, 10, and then you could go 9, 1, 0. So the, the combinations of those responses are huge. And the, the skill of uh, Port, when he put this all together, was to create a questionnaire that ironed out some of the ups and downs of our personal experiences so well, in fact, that over the years, the test-retest on the SDI has proved to be, I can't remember the exact figures right now, but um, certainly um, very high. And when we look at the results, the output is consistent, but the way that people responded on different times can quite often be very different. So it's something about the overall combination of the questions in the questionnaire that um, allows you to get that consistent result. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I really took my time when I did it. I really kind of thought through every question mm -hmm. and kind of, and I remember jiggling the number around and really trying to think through as honestly as I could, even though I could clearly see which column went into which part of the triangle. Uh -huh. So I kind of, I knew, what, I knew if I put, you know, 10 in the column on the right it was red or whatever. But I, I tried to ignore that and just genuinely think, now, what would I really do in this situation? And I have to say, it came out, you know, only a couple of points out, I think. Mm -hmm. I really thought, yeah, that that does get me. <laughs> I really felt quite sure about it. And that actually, interestingly, well, interesting for me, <laughs> it might not be that interesting for anybody else, but it helped me understand my MBTI type because I'd always had this conflict in my MBTI type whether my third letter was T or F. Okay. Because um, it's quite borderline. And because it put me on the, the right-hand side of the triangle, as you've described it, sort of more red than blue. Mm -hmm. So actually, interestingly, it helped me use MBTI better. We talked about the MVS there and, and what that means and how the different positions give us those different motivations based on people, performance and process and how they mix together, etc. But there is this other bit, which is about the strengths. Do you want to just, do you want to just talk through that for a sec? Absolutely. I, I... We, we, we talked about the so what question and, um, you know, there's these overused expressions like if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you always get. But I mean, there's an element of truth in that. When we combine the behavioral aspect with the motivational aspect of the SDI, what it does is it shows us that there are probably a bunch of behaviors that we have developed into habits that we can probably get away with and they'll be effective in most of the situations with most of the people most of the time. But through understanding more about what we're trying to achieve and 
this idea of um, uh, self gratification and um, you know higher uh, self esteem, self respect. We tend to get hungry for it. So, how do we develop our behavioural choices so we can be more effective with more of the people more of the time? Well, we have a look at which of the behaviours we're using habitually and which are the ones that we're not. So, this instrument, the Strengths Portrait, it's called the Q sort. So, it's shaped like a diamond where there's uh, a priority of one behavior at the top. On the next row down, there's two. Then the next row down, there's three. So it expands and then it shrinks down to one at the very bottom, which would be the least that you might, um, the strength that you'd use least often. Now, this is called a portrait because it's a snapshot in time. Our motivation is going to remain constant throughout our lives, but this is the thing that we can play with. So if we're going to develop better behavioral strategies, this is the one that we're going to change. Yeah, and this this was the bit that I actually I think liked best in the end because it was it was because um, it's about as you say it's about strengths or behaviours it's about stuff you actually do mm-hmm. and they're not although some of the behaviours sit above the three colours in the hub so for example I remember helpful mm-hmm. would sit above blue but that doesn't mean other people can't be helpful in any way no but no the way the way they would be helpful would be from their red perspective or from their hub perspective or whatever. Absolutely, and yeah. therefore they would use that, but they would use it in a different way. Oh yeah, we, the the conversations that I've had with um, uh, with parents and parents are uh, parenting is a fantastic arena to get into because you know, typically parents are doing the best they can for their children. Now, someone with a red MVS might consider it helpful to provide challenges and set clear goals and reward attainment with their children because that's their version of helping. Yeah. So uh, someone with the green MBA, uh, MBS that you were mentioning before, they might, in offering help, might provide references where their child can go off and learn for themselves and experiment themselves uh, because they would value autonomy. So again, this, this definition of what the strengths mean and how we use it is always coming back to what we're trying to achieve. And I think that, I mean, when, when I've used this as well, there's a couple of examples that I've used with regards to these because we did this. In fact, no, I copied you completely because we did this thing whereby as the group, we had to organize all the different strengths into the diamond shape. Oh, right. Yes. And I think I think the challenge you said to us was organize it in what you see as most important in this team. Yeah. I think that was the right. I yes. actually use it slightly differently because I use this more in leadership training. So I, I do it as in what would be a leader, right. your ideal leader. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we came up with when we did the ideal leader one, we came up with ambitious was quite near the top. Every single time we did it, ambitious was always near the top, whatever group I did it in. Yeah. And somebody in the group said, you know, I really, I'm just not, I'm just not ambitious. This is just not me, you know, so to be a better leader, do I need to become ambitious? Well, arguably no. But the point that we were talking about was, well, you, she was very blue, so you've got to adopt that ambitious, but do it from a blue perspective. Uh-huh. And there was some really interesting stuff in the reports that you get, which tells you, kind of gives you some ideas about how to do that. Mm-hmm. But when we were kind of talking that through and we we're saying, you know, well, perhaps your idea of ambition is the people in your team all go on and flourish. The people in your team spend the rest of their lives talking about how amazing it was being in that team and how that was the transformational experience. Mm-hmm. And that's your ambition. And from that moment, they got it completely. Yes, because we have all learned our own definitions of certain words and um, certain sentences, certain roles and the, what, you know, the, the big problem that we all have, if you ask groups of people, what's the number one thing that gets in the way of us being effective? Typically, they're going to say communication. It's because we believe we're all talking the same language and we're not. So right. that, that person that you've just described, when you said ambition, she was probably registering personal ambition. And it was something that she felt uncomfortable with because her blue MBS wouldn't really value her pushing ourselves forward above others. But as soon as you span it around and said, okay, well, what if it's the ambition for the team to succeed? Then all of a sudden, that was okay. Yeah, exactly. And it was about having that realization, that epiphany. Then we think, oh, actually, I can be ambitious. Yeah. And it was just, it was so empowering mm-hmm. from that point of view. And I remember there was another example, which was around helpful. And someone was saying that they, they were really helpful and that was their driving force. But that right. didn't mean they were subservient. And they didn't want to be making the tea and holding the coats. They wanted yeah. to be 
they wanted to be inputting into the biggest strategic decisions in the organization because that's how they could help best yeah so how could they do that well to do that perhaps they needed to be more assertive or something yeah so they needed to sort of borrow this other strength which perhaps was less natural to them right and, and, and that, I, again was so empowering yeah i i think you you've actually just sort of summed it up there because you know we're talking about learning and development we we're, we're trying to be more effective in different situations so if you imagine the situation where you've got someone whose heart and soul is motivated so let's use the the, the people or the blue motivation in helping and supporting others and the typical behaviors they've been using have been let's say making sure people are okay making them tea in the morning asking about how they were at the weekend all of the social stuff that comes very naturally to the blue mbs if the feedback that they're getting is that they are a bit subservient and a bit weak and it's not really how to get on in this culture maybe there's a very performance driven culture then on the face of it that could be a pretty bad situation for the person but because we know that they're trying to help what we can do is we can say to them all right let's have a look at your strengths portrait these are the behaviors you're using right now now are they achieving the goals of help and support that you're intending and clearly the answer is no then you're into a discussion about well what culture um what language are the people around you what are they speaking and if it is more performance driven then they start to see that actually by using that behavior by using that more uh, performance based uh, language and giving people the opportunity maybe giving people resources and challenges that's the best way of helping because we're never going to take away their intent to help we can just show them how to be better at it you don't want to take that away that's who they are that's that's the bit that's mapping back to their motivational value system isn't it that's yeah. why that's a strength yeah there's a there's a great analogy that we use in terms of um, a, a boy and an anchor so if you imagine a boy sort of bobbing around in the surface of the sea it it tends to move around and it's influenced by the environment what we can't see is the chain that goes all the way down to the deep um, uh, bottom of the uh, the sea where there's this anchor so if the anchor is our mbs and the boy are our behaviors the really important thing is the chain that joins the two a lot of uh, behavioral change programs don't reach their potential because we we try and get our teams and our individuals to adopt new behavior in a vacuum they have to do a certain behavior but until they can connect that behavior to their own motivation they're not really going to own it they're not really going to find their own ways of getting more effective at using that behavior uh, because it takes effort and that effort it's stressful yeah absolutely because let's face it when you try and do something different for the first time you are not going to get the same results as you were before your performance is very likely to go down first it is it is and you you will feel like you're being inauthentic you'll feel like you're you know you're being false you'll feel like you just you'll feel clumsy and it just won't feel right yeah absolutely and that's why i think this that, that this to me was the the key this is the thing that i really kind of turned turn my turn my corner i was going to say that makes no sense turned the corner you know what I mean? The thing that convinced me was was when we started talking about this, and it was answering the so what question, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But also giving me those empowering tools to use behaviours that felt alien and felt like they weren't my they weren't my language. Yeah, because but I felt like actually I could use those. But e even when you try and use a new language, and your accent might not be perfect, your pronunciation might not be perfect. However, the person who recognizes that language and lives in that culture is going to appreciate it more in terms of the effort and they're certainly going to understand more of the content than if you just continue speaking english with their accent yeah <laughs> speak louder <laughs> speak louder yeah yeah, yeah 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 i mean that's that's one of the things that is again it's it's helpful for people to understand about this positive intent that when we are using a behavior we know what we're trying to intend and it's positive and we're trying to operate out of um, a position of strengths but the recipient through their filter might translate it into something else and 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 that's what we call an overdone strength and we're very we're, we're quite strict on using language like overdone strength because you can't mention an overdone strength without acknowledging there's a strength a positive trying to get out and 
if I get feedback in terms of that, you know, helpfulness, but you know, they're feeling smothered because you're all over them, you're wrapping them up in cotton wool, then it's really highlighting a that I'm trying to help, but it's just the method that I'm using is not as effective as it could be. So use of overdone strengths is a really great one for for sort of coaching and feedback because you're talking about a different way of behaving in order to keep their motives sound. Another aspect of it wasn't it, the whole overdone strengths piece. Sure. Mm-hmm. And one one thing that um, again I found interesting when I was doing the workshop with you was we and I said we did that we had to sort the strengths out into that diamond mm-hmm. and you said what are the strengths this team needs right. and we were faking it because we weren't a real team so we just kind <laughs> of you know we were just people that had turned up to your course I remember it still got quite heated though well that's this is what I was going to say because it was really this is where we we briefly mentioned the conflict sequence before which I'm, which is the point of I'm going to ask you the question in a second okay but this is the bit where I kind of saw myself going into conflict because we were we were deciding we, you know when you first throw a big pile of um was it 24 strengths 28. At pe- 28 strengths at people and say sort them out there's a there's a moment of the, a moment more than a moment there's a period of confusion Yes. Plus, there's a period of people that want that suddenly have to work together, but there's no method for doing so because there's no hierarchy, there's nothing like that, and people are still being polite. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's only six of us. So, we quite quickly established let's do it this process. Let's just sort them into the three bins and then start sorting them out after that. And one of the people on on in the group started kind of going against all of that and saying, "Well, why don't we just put them in any old order? It doesn't matter." Just an exercise. I found myself going uh, immediately getting quite. Um, directive and going into that red space the performance thing and immediately taking over because i thought first of all you're not respecting simon who's just set up this he set up this activity so we're we're obliged out of courtesy and respect to you to take it seriously so first of all you're offending me there secondly we just agreed on a process so shut up and do the process or challenge that but don't just kind of not take it and i found myself getting really quite annoyed Right. Going into conflict and getting all quite... I was going to say getting red, That and red doesn't mean angry, does it? No. I, I just mean red just means, like, no, no, mister, I'm taking charge here, you're not doing it. And I sort of thought, oh, hang on a minute, here I go, this. <laughs> getting all bloody directive again. Yeah, yeah. And I just noticed myself doing it immediately, and I thought, stop, pull out, stop getting into conflict, because otherwise, you know, this is going to get into a bad place. But it was that awareness... At that point, and it just suddenly I thought, yeah, okay, I'm doing this, I'm going red. That's that's one of those reality things, though, because the the, the other guy, and I do remember him, really, his, his point was, look, this is just an exercise. We're on a course. The goal is to do this, this, and this, and this. So he was in this way of thinking that it's not too serious. And everyone knew that. However, you had a different set of rules. Yeah. There were some rules of engagement, and... It's, and this is where we we need again we need to be careful on definitions because when I'm working with the guys in the armed forces, if I ask them what conflict means, they've got quite a different view yeah, on, yeah. on what conflict is. Um, so the the reason that you had that sort of internal and that reaction that you probably couldn't actually help a lot of was that the conflict trigger was against a couple of your personal values, things that are so important to you. So there was some respect for another individual, which happened to be me in this case, so I thank you for that. Um, But then they had also made an agreement and you decided on a strategy. So one of your principles, I would suggest, is that once you've made that agreement, then you you carry on. This guy had made a commitment and then he'd gone back on it. Yeah, exactly. There was exactly those two values. You're right. So, So in our terms, conflict, unlike opposition is when we perceive a threat to our personal values. So it's at our very centre. It's the things that are so important to us that if somebody gets in the way, you just think, no, I'm not having that. Hang on, this is really not right. Opposition, we can talk about... The opposition could have been at the stage when you were deciding on your strategy, how you were going to create the thing. So you might have a different point of view, and that's fine. Different point that, of that can be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. It tends to be quite productive, actually. But when we get into our terms of conflict, because you're feeling threatened, because you're defending yourself, 
there still is the potential for for high productivity, but it's less likely unless you really understand what's going on. So what is this conflict sequence then? Do you want to just quickly explain? We haven't, yeah. got, we haven't got time to go into it in great depth. but No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so we talked about the three priorities before in terms of people, process and uh, performance. And I uh, talked about a combination that formed your MVS. So that, and I think I mentioned percentages as well. So it, it's one thing that acts together. When we start to defend ourselves, we tend to have a different set of priorities and they are used sequentially to defend whatever is going on around us. And the, the easiest way to describe this is a bit like a, uh, a car driving up a hill. So if, if the gradient is the conflict, so the steeper the hill, the higher the, the, the conflict, if you're driving up a hill, you start to slow down. Well, that's preventing you from achieving your goals. In your case, it was following the, uh, the procedure and respecting the other person in the room. So what we're likely to do in a car is that we're likely to change gear. And we shift into one style, which is designed to overcome the conflict. And it might be just enough to do that. If it's not enough, we might shift again. And if that still doesn't work, then we've got one more chance at it because of our three priorities. And the way that we shift through these gears tends to be in the, the same sequence. We might move through one quicker than normal if there's some history. So if we recognize the gradient or the uh, the conflict, we might shift to a certain style. But the first stage is the one where we really want to catch people. So I, I can't quite remember where you went first stage in, in conflict, can you? Red. Red, okay. So And you said before that this wasn't about being angry. It might look like that to some people, but the the intention is to address the issue um, whatever's causing the conflict, provide a resolution and get it done quick. Now, your priorities have shifted slightly. So, so why is this so important in teams and in terms of personal management? Well, your priorities need to be satisfied now. So if my priorities in conflict were actually to go more into the process and more green, then I might want to slow things down. I might want to ask you specifically what it was that had happened that had led you to be talking to me like this. And I might want time away from you to think. Now, those two clearly are not good bedfellows. No, because I'd be doing the opposite. Absolutely. And probably the more I try to slow you down, the more impatient you're likely to get. So um, we need to understand what these priorities are in order to satisfy those needs. Because actually, with your red need to uh, resolve this issue as quickly as possible... I might have some information that would be useful and the time that I need might actually not be that long. But we need to be communicating what we're trying to achieve rather than me accusing you of being a hothead and angry and all that kind of stuff. But the, uh, the, the third stage, have you, have you ever been to your third stage? Oh, I must have done, yeah. Well, my first stage is red and then I go green. Yeah. So if after the initial trying to take over and take charge and get on with it and just confront it it then becomes oh i better go off and check my facts and right. withdraw and hang on a minute am i right here and i will withdraw at that point right and then it's so the last one is to go blue yeah which is that total capitulation just, oh, just give up oh forget it not worth uh, it yeah you actually, at that point you've kind of burned the relationship haven't you yeah and and actually you you share the same sequence as i do so i know quite a bit about this one right um and you're right about the relationship and and the reason that we emphasize the need to identify and resolve conflict effectively at stages one and two is that uh, very few relationships survive a a third stage especially if it's unresolved at that point certainly there will be a much lower level of trust going forward. Um, and it's, it's, I've never met any relationship or individual that's described that it's been totally okay after being forced to their last stage. Because if you think about it, you've, it's a jugular issue. It might be on one of your principles. You have challenged it. You've tried to uh, overcome the opposition. That's not worked. You've then retreated gathered more information, thought it through, provided a strategy. You've really hung in there for a long time using logic and all that kind of stuff. That's still not worked. And now the only option you've got is, do you know what? I've got nothing left. I'm done. I'm finished. That's not yeah. not a good place to be. No, because as you say, it, it's not a case of capitulating in a nice way, of giving you know, a bit of a hug and say, oh, well, never mind. 
Oh no! It, it is a case of relationships gone. Yeah. Well, you used the word respect before, so for me, it is there is no respect left. Yeah, and that's the point of this, isn't it? The point of this is is not to describe this horrible journey. It's to give us the insight so that we don't go down this horrible journey. Yeah, and for us to understand, to recognise the, the the triggers. So in a uh, the learning environment, particularly with teams, we would be discussing. Uh, with individuals well what are the things that really do wind you up you know and that's not so that we can you know wind each other up more effectively it's so that we can avoid those moments where unwittingly we might be upsetting others and then because it's inevitable when you do get into conflict what do you look like what do you sound like you know how would I know that you're in that first stage and what's the most appropriate response because as challenging as you might look when you're coming towards me in your in your red mode, actually, if I focus on the fact that you want a quick resolution and I can show you that I'm committed to moving quickly, that'll probably do more to calming you down than anything else. When Alice did this a couple of months ago, we were we went for lunch afterwards to this amazing Italian restaurant in Barcelona. I really can recommend it, except I can't remember the name. <laughs> but we <laughs> we got in and we completely annoyed the waiter immediately by uh, the fact that we were all going to be split up, this big group, and then somebody said, oh, let's just go somewhere else, despite the fact that we'd reserved this and he'd done all the cooking. Well, and you could see the waiter immediately go into conflict. And he immediately went into green and started going on about, you know, yeah, but that's not what was agreed. That's, you, you said you'd do this. And, and then as somebody sort of, people were grumbling and all of that, he started going quite red and he started ordering us all about and being quite stroppy. Uh-huh. And it was quite amusing because we're all sitting there going, all oh, right, yeah, have you seen the conflict sequence? We're all kind of discussing the conflict sequence. Unfortunately, <laughs> he didn't speak enough English to know what we were talking about. But And then we rescued it. We didn't We didn't make him go blue at the end. <laughs> Good. We rescued it by complimenting his rather excellent cooking. And I have to say it was one of the best Italian meals he ever had. So Right. Uh, we, we ended up in sort of best of friends. But, um, but it was quite amusing to watch him go through this conflict sequence. Uh-huh. And, and kind of, um, we sort of felt like we knew how to pull him back out of it, which was quite nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. See, when you manage conflict effectively, it tends to make relationships stronger. And the the course that I was doing then was leadership development, and I've I've alluded to that a couple of times. That the way I've used this, and you mentioned this previously. Yeah. What other areas could we use this in? Gosh, this is a, a question that we get asked a lot, and it's it's quite hard to answer simply because of the variety. I mean, fundamentally, we're talking about managing relationships effectively. So if I think where we've been over the years, you know, we go from owners and senior partners in major financial institutions and the dynamics of that kind of team through uh, executives, uh, through managers, uh, right the way through to teenagers in prisons. So basically, where there's an important relationship, whether it be sales, you've mentioned leadership, it might be coaching, it might be team management, team building. All of these things rely on effective relationships. So my challenge some years ago was to show me a a situation where they felt that uh, relationships were not important. And um, and I would would find some reason where it could be tuned up. So it's pretty much it's pretty much everywhere. Everywhere that involves human relationships, absolutely, which which is everywhere, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I mean the the bulk of the um, the work that we see uh, tends to be with managers, increasingly uh, leaders, um, because managers these days are being asked to adopt more of a coaching role, where they have to be far more aware of the needs of their direct reports, and they need to be given skills to deal with that. So. I guess most of the stuff that we see is at sort of manager level, leadership level. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. And, you know, we've only been able to really skate over the surface of what's a really interesting theory and and very, very useful tool. So thank you very much for your time today, Simon. If people want want to know more about this, how could they get in touch with you? Or what website should they go to? It's personalstrengths.uk. So that's www.personalstrengths.uk. If you go onto that landing page, you'll find that there's two uh, symbols. One is for total SDI. That's the thing that we've been describing. And uh, the other is core strengths. Core strengths is relatively new on the market in the UK. What we've done is we've created a ready-made package specifically for organizations where we've built in all of the key learning messages so that it takes the heat off the facilitator to a certain extent. So if you're within an organization, Go onto the core strengths bit and see what uh, you can learn from that. 
if you're a trainee provider, go onto the Total SDI and you'll read and learn more about the stuff that um, that we've just been talking about. Great. Okay. Thanks so much for that. And all those links are going to be on the Trainer Tools website, which is trainer-tools.com. And there will also be a, a profile page for you, Simon, so people can see see what you look like and um yeah well it's part of the deal i'm sorry and uh there'll be links on there as well so thank you very much for your time today well thank you for the opportunity well there you go i told you it was a long one but i hope you think it was worth it i really can recommend using sti i think it's a really good tool really useful and there's a huge amount to it and the more comfortable you get with the theory especially around things like conflict sequence and how the strengths link into everything and how overdone strengths work the more value you can really get from it if you need to know more, please look at our website and you can see Simon's biography there and you links to the Personal Strengths website. Thanks and see you next month.